So, okay, here we go. Now, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus, I'd like to take some time tonight uh, so that we can just focus our attention on a handful of Old Testament prophecies that actually point us to the first advent, or in other words, the first arrival of our Savior Jesus. But before we do this, I want to begin by first reminding you that the Old Testament is actually filled with hundreds and hundreds of prophecies, all of which are designed to reveal the identity of our Messiah. You know, according to one count, there are at least 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that point us to the Savior who was sent by God the Father. So, so there's over 300 prophecies, details, that help us to understand who the Messiah would be, when he would come, what he would do, and these sorts of things. And all of these details, when you add up all of these prophecies together, we have a really good understanding of when the Messiah would arrive, you know, what tribe he would come from, where he would be born, and all these sorts of things. And so here in our study tonight, I just want to take some time to examine five of those prophecies, which actually present us with precise details about the birth and and the first arrival of our promised Messiah. And not only that, but we're also going to explore the evidence which helps us to see that Jesus actually has fulfilled these very prophecies. And so with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 7. And as you're making your way there to the seventh chapter of Isaiah, well, it'll help you to know that it's here in this chapter where we find the Lord, he's sending the prophet Isaiah to rebuke the king of Judah for all of his wicked ways. And it's, it's here in this rebuke where we find the Lord, he's actually promising to eventually raise up a, a king for Israel who will then rule the people uh, in righteousness. And not only that, but he also presents them with a sign a supernatural sign which would help them to identify uh, the, the identity of this coming king. And so with this as the focus, if you would look with me here at Isaiah chapter 4. I'm going to focus your attention there at verse 14. Here Isaiah tells us that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, here in this verse, we find the Lord, he's revealing a prophecy uh, about the coming king who would rule in righteousness. And according to Isaiah here, well, the coming king would be identified by this this sign, which uh, we believe to be this supernatural birth as the virgin conceives. Now, I realize that there are those, and, and specifically I'm referring to skeptics uh, and, and unbelieving scholars who argue that the Hebrew word, which is translated virgin, well, it could also just be rendered young woman. And so they insist that, oh, he's not talking about a virgin. Virgin isn't, isn't the correct uh, translation. It should just be young woman. And yet what, what, what we must ask here is, well, what kind of sign would that be? Here's a sign for you. Uh, a young woman is going to get pregnant and, and give birth. Yeah? Okay. I mean, that happens all the time. That's, that's not a sign. That's not something to be amazed by. What, a, a gal got pregnant? You know, she gave birth to a, a, a baby? You know, that's not unusual. So, the, so this is supposed to be some sort of unusual sign that would draw attention to the identity of our Messiah. And so, so, so it's true that the Hebrew word could be rendered young woman, 
But it's also true that, you know, in light of the culture of that period of time, young women were typically virgins, and uh, which is why this word can also be rendered accurately virgin. And so, so with that, uh, you know, uh, we have to assume that if this is some sort of unusual sign, then it only makes sense to render the Hebrew as a virgin. This is the sign that a virgin shall conceive. That would certainly be unusual. Well, with that, you know, I'd like to uh, present you with the fulfillment of this prophecy, which we find in the gospel according to Matthew. And so with this as the focus, let's turn in our Bibles to first, uh, the first chapter of Matthew's gospel account. You see, it's here in Matthew chapter 1 where we find Matthew presenting us with the genealogy of Jesus as well as the events that are leading up to the, the, the day of his birth. And as we examine this account here in Matthew chapter 1, what we quickly learn is that Mary was indeed a virgin when she became pregnant with Jesus. And we know that this is the case by her reaction to uh, the, this uh, information about her pregnancy. Uh, with this in mind, if you would look with me here at Matthew chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 18. Here Matthew tells us that the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, they've promised themselves to one another. They're moving forward to the day of marriage and they're remaining pure in their relationship. And she's found with child. And Matthew tells us that this was a child from the Holy Spirit. And in verse 19, we learn that Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And here in these verses, we learn that Mary, she was in fact a virgin. Uh, She was about to be married to Joseph, but they hadn't been married yet. Uh, And she discovered that, you know, God was about to use her to fulfill the prophecy that's found back in Isaiah 7. When Isaiah 7, you know, by the Spirit of God, pointed forward to the day when a virgin would conceive, Mary found out she's that virgin. She's that girl. And while Joseph first assumed that Mary had been unfaithful to him, because that would be the rational thought process, an angel of the Lord shows up and says, no, 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 she hasn't been unfaithful. This is the supernatural sign that Isaiah was talking about. Mary was a faithful lady who was about to give birth to the promised Messiah. And so it was the Holy Spirit who placed that supernatural seed into the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, uh, there are many people who take issue with the concept of a virgin birth. And yet, uh, even with modern technology, you know, artificial insemination is something that's possible today. So uh, why would that be impossible for the the creator of the human race? That seems like a no-brainer. But based on all of this, we can see here that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, it only stands to reason that he's also Emmanuel. Because while his name is Jesus, his title is 
Emmanuel, and Matthew goes out of the way to tell us exactly what that means. Emmanuel simply means God with us. Now, when we consider this concept of Jesus being God with us, or Emmanuel, please understand that uh, the, 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 the fulfillment of this virgin birth prophecy also helps us to understand that he is more than just some natural human son. He's so much more than that. And, and not only that, but this brings us to the second prophecy that I want to consider. Uh, and, and I'm talking about a prophecy that we find in the book of Micah. So uh, if, you would, uh, if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Micah chapter 5. That's actually located near the end of the Old Testament. As you're making your way to the fifth chapter of Micah, uh, well, it'll help you to know that the prophet Micah was contemporary with the prophet Isaiah. Their ministries uh, were around the same uh, and overlapping one another. And not only that, but the Lord also sent uh, both of these guys to go and rebuke the people of Judah prior to the Assyrian invasion of northern Israel. And it's here in the middle of Micah's book where we find the Lord using the prophet Micah to present his people with a very small detail about the coming of the promised Messiah. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me here at Micah chapter 5, we'll begin reading there at verse 1 because here the Lord declares, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, here in these verses, we find the Lord revealing the location of our Messiah's birth. And, and while it's true that the promised Messiah would be, remember, Emmanuel, his title is Emmanuel, which means God with us, Now we learn that Emmanuel, uh, his goings forth are from everlasting. In other words, as far as you can look back into into the past, you know, go a little bit further and Emmanuel is still there. Uh, And and if you go back a little bit further than that, Emmanuel is still there. And if if you look past the beginning of time, Emmanuel is still there because he is from everlasting. He is an infinite being. So Emmanuel, which is God with us, the, the deity of Emmanuel has always been because he is one person within the triune Godhead. But then came the day when you know, the, the conception of Emmanuel occurred, and then at the moment of birth, that's when Mary then named him Jesus, according to the instructions uh, that they had received. And so with all of this, the promised Messiah, who is Emmanuel, has goings forth from everlasting, from eternity past, and yet this same Savior was born in the little town of Bethlehem. And in this way, we see the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, meaning that we see that Jesus is both deity and humanity. And it's not 50-50, we're talking he's 100% deity and he's 100% humanity. He had a complete, you know, the, the fullness of deity was manifest in the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so how do you have someone who's 200%? I'm, I'm not totally sure. But I'm 150% sure that he was 200%, if that makes any sense. But, you know, what we do learn, though, is that uh, Jesus fulfills this prophecy 
uh, found in Micah chapter 5, this prophecy about being born in Bethlehem. And to prove my point, let's turn to Luke chapter 2. You see, it's here in the second chapter of Luke's gospel account. This is where Luke reveals the testimony that he himself had received from the eyewitnesses who were there at the time of Christ's birth. And I'll remind you that Luke wasn't there in Israel during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. He had come to investigate all of this after the fact. And after arriving there in Israel, he began to interview all of the eyewitnesses so that he could then prepare an orderly account for uh, for his boss, so to speak, whose name was uh, Theophilus. Uh, Now, with all this in mind, if you would look with me here at Luke chapter 2, I want to begin reading there at verse 1, because here Luke tells us that it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, that's while they were in Bethlehem, that the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now here in these verses, we we learn about the way that Joseph and Mary who at this point in time were living in Nazareth, which you know was up near the Sea of Galilee. They were living in Nazareth at the time of her pregnancy, and, and, and yet they were providentially forced to return to Joseph's hometown there in Bethlehem. Why? Well, because Caesar decided that it was time to take a census count of everyone uh, under, under his jurisdiction, which... Uh, you know, was a large portion of the of the world. So Caesar Augustus, you know, the, the Caesar of Rome, decides that he wants a census of all the people under his authority. And, and this just so happens to be at the very time when Mary's about to give birth. And it just so happens, you know, that her husband Joseph, uh, you know, his family uh, comes from the area of Bethlehem. And it just so happens that God's in control of everything. I mean, that really is what this means, right? What it means here is that, you know, God has had his hand providentially on all of these things. And was Caesar Augustus just throwing out, you know, his, his desires and, and giving orders to the people that he's controlling? Yep. Yeah, he, he, was, he was the political leader making political moves to, to accomplish his political purposes. Yep. And yet was God the one overseeing all of that and placing Joseph and Mary in the place that they needed to be to fulfill prophecy? Most certainly. Most certainly. So, uh, you know, I I know that we can all get frustrated about political leaders who are, you know, doing things that kind of cut into, you know, our desires and, and, you know, our plans. Uh, But I would just encourage you to remember that God's the one that's that's still on the throne. God is the one who's ultimately uh, in charge. And so we can rest in God's providence. And listen, there's no political leaders who can, who can uh, stop God from accomplishing his will. There are no political leaders who can stop God from doing what God wants to do. And in that we can rejoice. But so 
here we find Joseph and Mary, they head back to Bethlehem. And, and it was there in Bethlehem where Mary fulfills the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 as she gives birth to the baby Jesus there in that stable. Now this brings us to the third prophecy. The third prophecy that I want to examine is found in the writings of Hosea. Uh, and, and so if you would, let's turn to Hosea chapter 11. Here in uh, Hosea 11, the Lord reveals how the Messiah would actually end up in Egypt And as you're making your way there to the 11th chapter of Hosea, uh, it'll help you to know that Hosea was actually a contemporary of Isaiah and Micah. So he was also living uh, in this period of time uh, before the Assyrian captivity. But rather than being sent to the people of Judah, Hosea was sent to rebuke the northern tribes of Israel. Remember, the the nation of Israel had been uh, divided up into two kingdoms, that being the northern tribes of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judea, uh, Judah. Uh, so Hosea was a prophet to the northern tribes during this time period. And, and it's here in this prophecy where we find the, the God of Israel using Hosea to uh, present a promise that he would call his only begotten son out of Egypt, which is very strange. Now with this in mind, if you would look with me here, let's consider this prophecy found in Hosea chapter 11. I want to draw your attention there to verse 1. Here the Lord declares, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Interesting. You know, he's saying, hey, I love Israel. I I love Jacob. When he was even a child, I loved him. But then we learn that the father is going to call his own son out of Egypt. Now, this is a very odd prophecy, and and we find the God of Israel, he's, he's promising that he's going to call his son out of Egypt. And so the question is, well, how does, how does the Messiah, the, the only begotten son of God, end up in Egypt? And why is he being called out of Egypt? How is it that the Messiah, being born in Bethlehem, is then called out of Egypt? And in order to answer this question, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. If you would, let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. Here we find the apostle presenting us with the actual fulfillment of this prophecy. And so uh, as you make your way to the second chapter of Matthew's gospel account, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you about that group of wise men who came from the east in search of the one who would be born king of the Jews. And, and just as a side note, it's actually believed by many that the wise men we're actually studying you know, uh, the prophecies that the prophet Daniel wrote, as I, as I pointed out this past Sunday. It, it's very possible that they were studying the, the writings of the prophet Daniel uh, as, as they were led then by the special star that brought them to Israel. Uh, but regardless of the exact information which led them to follow that cosmic anomaly there to, to, uh, to Jerusalem, uh, listen, the search for the Savior ended up alerting King Herod uh, to the fact that a promised king had been born there in Israel. The, the wise men showed up and, and went straight to, uh, to see King Herod to find out, hey, where, where, where's, maybe in their own minds, they're thinking it's going to be the son of King Herod, right? Or, or, or a child within this royal lineage of, of, the, of the Herods. Uh, but this only just alerted King Herod to the fact that he had some competition in town. Uh, and with this historic context in mind, if you would look with me here at Matthew chapter 2, We'll begin reading there at verse 7, because here Matthew writes, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. 
And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And there was until the death of Herod, uh, and, and, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Now here in these verses we find King Herod, uh, we learn about this plot that, that he would have the, the, as he attempted to kill the child who was born king of the Jews. Why? Well, because he's not ready to give up his throne. He's thinking, well, if there's somebody born king of the Jews... You know, and Herod, uh, his family had come from an Edomite lineage, you know, and had been placed there by Rome. You know, he's thinking, well, if there's a baby born king of the Jews, you know, then this is going to, this is going to, you know, possibly uh, get us kicked out uh, of Israel. Uh, and so he decides that it's time for him uh, to take matters into his own hands and decides that it's time to kill uh, the, this baby. But rather than allowing the baby Jesus to die, uh, you know, God the Father uh, provided information through an angel who showed up and warned Joseph. And it's based on this warning that Joseph then took his family to Egypt so that he could escape the evil scheme of Herod. And, and they remained there uh, until the angel showed up and said, it's time to go. And when, it, when, when, you know, that, when they got that information, uh, that's when God the Father called his only begotten son to come out of Egypt and return to Israel. So again, we find Jesus Christ fulfilling this messianic prophecy uh, you know, uh, that was uh, revealed uh, by the prophet Hosea. Uh, the fourth prophecy that I want to examine is found in the book of Jeremiah. So hold your place here in Matthew chapter 2 because we're going to come back to Matthew's account. But I'd like you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. It's here in Jeremiah 31 where we find the prophet Jeremiah preparing uh, you know, the people for this tragedy, uh, which would result in the death of children who were living in the region of Benjamin, uh, so that cries are heard all the way to a town of Ramah. And as you're locating the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord was actually presenting this prophecy uh, to his chosen people just before the time of their Babylonian captivity. And with all this historic context in mind, if you would look with me here at Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to begin reading there at verse 15, because here Jeremiah writes, thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now here in this prophecy, we find the Lord, he's pointing to this day when Rachel would weep for her children. 
And as we consider this prophecy, I should take a moment to point out that at the time of the prophecy, Rachel had been dead for more than a thousand years. So clearly, Jeremiah is not talking about Rachel, you know, literally. The Lord wasn't referring to the literal tears of Israel's wife, Rachel. No, instead he was referring to the descendants of Rachel who would then be impacted by this tragedy which would occur there in the land of Benjamin, even as far as Ramah. Not only that, but according to this prophecy, the children of uh, of Rachel uh, would be the ones who would then be no more. And based on this, uh, we can see how this prophecy was actually pointing to uh, an instance of infanticide, which occurred there in the tribal region of Benjamin shortly after the birth of our Savior Jesus. To prove my point, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 2, where we find King Herod actually fulfilling this prophecy. If you would notice with me here in Matthew chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 16. Here we read that Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Here in these verses, we find the Apostle Matthew informing his audience that the prophecy, which was found back in Jeremiah chapter 31, was actually fulfilled by King Herod. King Herod committed the crime of infanticide throughout these districts surrounding Bethlehem. And since Ramah was 10 miles down the road, well, This most certainly included all the male children in that area of Ramah. And it's possible that there was a small enough population there of babies that, you know, the babies there, the male babies there in Ramah were no more after this. Without debate, this was a horrific tragedy. And yet at the same time, this also provides us with prophetic proof that Jesus is the promised Messiah because Jesus was in Egypt while all of this was taking place. So, so we see how you know, God has revealed the future in advance through these specific prophecies. The fifth prophecy that I want to consider uh, is found in the book of Psalms. And so if you would, let's turn to the book of Psalms. And, and I want to specifically turn to Psalms, uh, Psalm chapter 72. Here we find Solomon writing a prophetic song uh, about the future reign of the Messiah. And as you make your way to the 72nd Psalm, I should point out that this prophecy which mainly points to the day when the Lord Jesus will rule and reign over the earth. Well, it also seems to point to a day when when the shepherds would come and worship the baby Jesus. And, And with this as the focus, I'd like you to look with me here at Psalm chapter 72. I want to focus your attention there at verse 9. Here Solomon declares, Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. Uh, now, here in this verse, we find Solomon, he's writing about the day when uh, those who, who are dwelling in the wilderness will come and worship at the feet of the Messiah. And, and chances are, you know, the, the main fulfillment of this prophecy is, uh, you know, w- will occur during the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, but I do believe that this is partially fulfilled by the shepherds uh, who were there at the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, With this as the focus, I want to consider Luke's account of the night when the shepherds came uh, to bow down before the baby Jesus. So if if you would, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. 
like you to turn back to Luke chapter 2, and as you're making your, your way there to the second chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that Luke actually took the time to interview all the eyewitnesses, which would have included these shepherds, because these shepherds were certainly eyewitnesses. And it's here in these verses where we find him recounting the, uh, the, the testimony of those shepherds about this incredible night when this choir of angels appeared before those shepherds who were out guarding the sheep. And uh, with all this context in mind, look with me here at Luke chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 8. Here Luke writes, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now this is, this is one of the main verses for why people insist that Jesus wasn't born on December the 25th. Uh, you, know, in, in, you know, it's cold in Israel in December, and so they don't typically keep their uh, sheep or their flocks out in the fields at night uh, when, when, it's, when it's cold outside. So uh, this seems to suggest here that you know, Jesus was probably born uh, in, in the fall or possibly the spring. Uh, but regardless, you know, the, the shepherds are out, you know, keeping their watch over the flock by night. In verse 9, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which, is, uh, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, uh, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now here in these verses we find this choir of angels announcing the birth of our Savior Jesus. And, and this announcement though was made to a group of shepherds who were living in the fields with their sheep. And that's very interesting. And, and I, don't, I don't know if you've ever taken the time to think about it, but have you ever wondered why God the Father sent this heavenly host to a group of shepherds? You know, you, like this is, these are royal ambassadors from heaven. You would think that they would want to go, you know, to the, to the king's house there in Jerusalem or, or, or to the nobilities of the time period there in Israel or, or the religious leaders, you know, there at the temple. But, but no, the, this, the, this royal delegation, these, these heavenly ambassadors appear in this, you know, field where these shepherds are hanging out. Wouldn't it make more sense, you know, for the angelic choir to, to, to go to, you know, more important people than shepherds? You know, some scholars uh, take this question and speculate that since Jesus himself is the good shepherd, well, it only makes sense then that these shepherds would be invited to come and meet the baby Jesus. But, but if you ask me, it's my guess that God the Father was providentially fulfilling the prophecy that Solomon wrote in the 72nd Psalm. I believe that this is a fulfillment, you know, of the prophecy of, of how those who dwell in the wilderness will bow down before him. Well, not only that, but, but I'm, I'm also going to guess that, you know, God knew how these shepherds would go out and spread the word. With this in mind, if you would look with me here at Luke chapter 2, I want to focus your attention there at verse 15. Here Luke writes, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. 
And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now remember, that's, that, that was the sign that this angelic choir spoke of, that they would see this incredible sign, a baby in swaddling clothes lay, laying in a manger, uh, which, which is a food trough. You know, this, this is a food trough. And so that's why this is unusual. You don't typically take your newborn child, uh, wrap it in swaddling clothes, and then, and then put it in, in your dog bowl. You know, you, you know, oh, what a, what a great place for my baby in this, you know, in the dog bowl there in the kitchen, you know, uh, or, 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 you know, if you have a ranch, you know, and you have, you know, uh, uh, a food trough for your cattle, you wouldn't think, oh, a brand new baby, the, you know, let's place the baby out there in the, uh, the food trough. No. So this is very unusual. And yet this is all they had since there, there was no room uh, there at the Holiday Inn. But uh, so with that, though, these guys show up, they find it just as the angel said. They find Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a food trough. And they realize this is legit. This is for real. And, and at that point in time, these guys immediately cut down an evergreen tree and, you know, and, and put it up and put lights all over it. They rushed out to Toys R Us to buy some, some presents. You know, they, they immediately started cooking a, a goose because, you know, cooked goose for everyone, of course. Uh, Santa was there. Rudolph showed up. You know, Tiny Tim, you know, was declaring God's blessings on everyone. You know, the little drummer boy was parumpa pum pumming And, you know, that's, I get it. Like, this is all found in Second Opinions chapter 5. But... Uh, but no, that's not what happened at all. Look, uh, the, the shepherds went out and told everyone about the arrival of the Messiah. As a matter of fact, look with me here at Luke chapter 2. It's verse 17. Here Luke writes, Now when they had seen him, when they saw the baby Jesus in the manger, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now, here in these verses, we find these shepherds, they're so excited about the birth of Jesus Christ that they couldn't contain themselves. They weren't just going to sit on their hands. They weren't just going to go back to the fields. They weren't just going to go back to bed. You know, it's late. We're unless, you know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll tell people about this tomorrow. You know, chances are that's what the, the high priest would have done. It's just like, oh, a choir of angels. You want me to go search for a baby? Maybe tomorrow. You know, I'm going to get back to bed here. But these guys, you know, they were so excited that, that they immediately went into the streets and they began to spread the word to anyone that would listen to them. And after sharing this good news with the people there in Bethlehem, they immediately returned to the stable so that they could continue to glorify God and praise his name for all the things that they had heard and seen. And as we consider how their reaction to the birth of our Savior led them to engage in this act of evangelism and in this continuing worship, I just want to conclude this study by suggesting that, you know, as Christians, we ought to be following in their footsteps. And what better time of year than Christmas than to publicly profess our faith in Jesus Christ? It's my hope that the things we've heard here tonight, you know, throughout this study would lead us to also glorify God as we publicly praise his holy name. If you're not blown away by, if you're not marveling, about this information. If you're not completely, you know, just 
thrilled with, uh, with a sense of wonder as we consider the way that God revealed his plan and then fulfilled it showed us in the Old Testament, and then uh, showed us the fulfillment in the New Testament. If that doesn't just fill you with a sense of wonder, and, and you need you know, reindeers with red noses and these sorts of things, it's like, I don't know what to tell you. you know, this, uh, this study, this, these, these five prophecies are so exciting and so mind-boggling that, that we shouldn't get to this place of familiarity where it's just kind of like, yeah, Christmas again, birth of Jesus Christ, whatever. No, we should be just filled with marvel uh, as we consider the way that God revealed what he was going to do, did it, and, and, and now we get to rejoice in the knowledge of it. It's incredible. We should be you know, filled with, with that passion that those shepherds had uh, on the night when they found the baby Jesus in that manger. Let's go out and share the good news that the Lord Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah who came to die for our sins. Let's use the Christmas holiday as a time for us to go and share the good news that sinners like us can be saved by simply placing our faith in Jesus Christ, the the Messiah who came and received the punishment that we deserve so that we could receive the forgiveness that we don't deserve. If you have kids, I encourage you to, to, to share these prophecies with your kids on Christmas morning. If you want your kids to have a sense of wonder about Christmas, present this information. That there's a God in heaven who knows the future in advance and prepared to send his only begotten son so that we can be saved. Present them with these amazing prophecies which help us to understand that God the Father has given us the greatest gift ever given. When he gave us his only begotten son so that we could be saved, it's the greatest gift ever given. And we ought to marvel at this. Finally, I encourage you to share these prophecies with your unbelieving friends and family members. You know, I'm sure we're all going to gather together at some point in time, you know, as we celebrate Christmas. And, and, and listen, you know, we have to understand that, you know, that our unbelieving friends and family members love Christmas too. Now they just, they, they focus on the secular aspects of Christmas. And we ought to take their interest in the secular things of Christmas and then bring in our spiritual truths and, and what better truth than to help them to see these five prophecies that were presented in the Old Testament. We know they were written before the birth of Jesus Christ. And they were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. We ought to present these prophecies to our unbelieving friends and family members as we spend time with them this Christmas season. You might not know this, but the fulfillment of prophecy is one of the strongest proofs that the Bible is the inspired word of God. You realize that no other religious book on the planet has prophecy in the same way that the Bible does? You know, I, I think that Joseph Smith prophesied that he would go to Nauvoo and then he went, you know, in order to fulfill it. It's just like a yeah, big deal. Jesus Christ fulfilled a prophecy about the tribe that he would be born from. Jesus Christ fulfilled a prophecy about the town that he would be born in. Jesus Christ fulfilled, I mean, think about it. If Jesus is just a human baby, how can he choose what tribe he would be born to? How can he pick what town he would be born in? He couldn't pick those things if he's just some natural child. He would have no say over those things. How could he choose to be born of a virgin? 
if he didn't exist prior to conception. Clearly, Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is Emmanuel. And to imagine that the Son of God took on human frailty so that we can have a relationship with this God that we've sinned against every day of our life, it's mind-boggling, and we should be super excited to share this information with our unbelieving friends and family members this Christmas. And the prophetic word of God provides us with the evidence that we need to demonstrate that the authors of the Bible, while they were, yes, humans, were clearly receiving information from an all-knowing being who exists outside of time and space. With that being the case, listen, if you're looking for a way to reach your unbelieving friends and family members, if you're looking for a way to lead them to Jesus Christ so that they might be saved, I encourage you, use this Christmas holiday to present them with these Christmas prophecies. And as you do, you'll be helping them to understand that Jesus is the reason for this season. Let's pray.